1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. I have friends who used to work in the Milwaukee DA's office and some people who work around the DA's office. And I, I ask them honestly, what's going on down there? And many of my friends just shake their head. There's a story in the Journal Sentinel today that underscores how at least life is cheap in the city of Milwaukee. Now, here's the story the way the Journal Sentinel reports it, and it caught my attention. The headline, Milwaukee punk singer accused of threatening pregnant ex-girlfriend with knife may get probation. Huh. Now, let me back into this story. Domestic abuse cases are, are, are just minefields for prosecutors because what happens a lot of times is you'll have a situation where you have an abusive husband or an abusive boyfriend and the, 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 the victim, the, the woman, in most cases it's the woman, the, the victim, um, has conflicted emotions. In some cases, they're they're trapped in the relationship. In other cases, they think they love the person. Um, you have these very, very volatile situations. And what happens is, from a prosecutor's perspective, you, you go out, you get a report of, say, spousal abuse or whatever. You make the arrest of the perpetrator. Usually it's the guy. And then what happens is the, the victim and the man get back together. And so you have the victim... The time for trial rolls around and the victim doesn't show up or doesn't want to cooperate or, or whatever. They're very, very difficult because of, of that dynamic. And I'm in no way, shape, or form am I blaming the victim. There's all sorts of reasons for it. But it is just the, the reality. At the same time, there are cases where you really do have the abuser nailed dead to rights. And when you have prosecutors that give away the cases, it's mind-boggling. So that's the background. Here's the story. The 32-year-old former frontman of a popular Milwaukee punk band chased his pregnant ex-girlfriend with a knife, threatening to cut the child from her womb if she wouldn't be with him, according to prosecutors. So that's the DA's office theory. Julian, uh, Julian... Sato Longo, also known as Jules Frank, the former guitarist for The Pukes, <clears throat> has prior felony convictions in Miami. So keep in mind, the front man for <clears throat> The Pukes has prior felony convictions. All right. Um, the woman he tried to stab had called Milwaukee police at least twice before to report his abusive behavior. Prosecutors charged the guy with only misdemeanors in the attempted stabbing and plan to recommend two years of probation when he is sentenced on January 19th. In exchange for his guilty plea to one count, the prosecutor will also recommend a stayed jail sentence of nine months. What that means is the judge looks sternly at you and says, I'm sending you to jail for nine months, but I'm going to stay it, which means you don't serve a day of time unless you screw up on your supervision. And even if you screw up on your supervision, this is Milwaukee County, and you almost never, never get sent back to jail. More on that later. And then the other charge is going to be dropped. So the story in the paper goes on, and it talks about how this this creep had had a very, very volatile relationship with this woman. It's kind of, it's got the classics of what I would describe as the battered woman syndrome. You know, they're together. 
Then they split up. Then they get back together. He kind of stalks her. They get back together off and on. She calls the police. Then they get back together. All sorts of things. So it's kind of got that classic situation from August of 2016 through April of 2017. Um, and these were after instances of violence. The couple continued to have an on-again, off-again relationship. The woman says it was marred by physical abuse. But for whatever reason, she ends up with him. So I understand Difficult to prosecute because, again, you've got kind of the he said, she said um, thing. Uh, The woman says, I made multiple attempts to leave, but when I would try, he would break into my home, confront me in public and bombard me with messages. I didn't think it was possible to leave without him hurting me. Um, She had called the cops on a couple occasions, but for whatever reason, at least, you know, what happens a lot of times is, again, the, the victim, for whatever reason, goes back, or I love him, or or whatever. All right. Um, Then January of 2017, she hid in her bathroom, called 911 to report someone she believed with this guy, breaking into her house through the second-story porch. Four months later, she called again to report he was sending her Facebook messages, saying he was at her home and could see her. She told 911 operators he threatened to burn down her house 30 minutes earlier and had been violent to her in the past. She hid in the basement. Um, Milwaukee police did not file incident reports in these cases and did not investigate his um, thefts. All right. In April, she um, read a post on social media warning women about the guy, you know, and then it kind of goes on. So, again, you, you have th- this whole thing, but at one point in time, she ends up pregnant with his, his child. All right. So, you know, obviously they're getting back together f- under some circumstances. Okay. Well, here's where it gets interesting. September 10th of last year, um, she leaves a morning meeting in Milwaukee's River West neighborhood. He was waiting for her. Uh, she gets in her car, tries to drive away, but mistakenly turns down a dead-end alley. He parked behind her, got out of his car, yanked open her unlocked door, and punched her in the face. He pulled a switchblade and held it near his her stomach, threatening to cut the baby out. A 45-year-old man inside a nearby house. So now you've got witnesses to what's going on. 45-year-old man inside a nearby house heard yelling and went outside. He told the creep to leave her alone or he would call police. He told the guy to stay out of it and began pulling her towards the car, saying, you're coming with me. She was crying and refusing to walk. According to the witness, the guy said he saw the creep lunge at the woman with a knife and yelled for him to stop. Realizing he was being watched, he retreated to his own car. The witness reported hearing him yell, don't go home or I will kill you. All right, so now, again, you don't have just the victim who clearly has had an off-and-again, on-again relationship with the creep. You have an independent witness who is watching the assault, watching him pull the knife, hearing the threats. The next day, okay, when police interviewed him later the day, he denied any violence and said the two had agreed to get coffee and talk about the baby. The next day, he was charged with two misdemeanors, battery and disorderly conduct by use of a dangerous weapon, both with domestic abuse enhancers. The combined maximum possible penalty for the charges was only one year in jail. He pled guilty to disorderly conduct. And again, the DA's office is recommending essentially nothing. You, you, know, you want to understand how screwed up things are in Milwaukee County in John Chisholm's office. Here you have a guy who has a, hist- a convicted felon 
who pulls a knife on a pregnant woman, threatens to cut her baby out, and threatens to kill her, is observed punching her in the face. And this is after a history of that. You finally got the guy. You finally got the evidence you need to put this creep away for a long time. And what do you do? You just flat out give the case away. Here, plead guilty to, we're only going to charge you with misdemeanors. You plead guilty, you know, disorderly conduct. That's like shooting fireworks off at 1230 at night. That's what that is. This is a guy that pulls a gun, threatens to kill a woman, cut her baby out, after a history of doing this, and they flat out give the case away. You wonder why things are so screwed up in this community, and this is example number one. I've got example number two coming up in a little bit. We start off the show with three big things. Story number one, all right, is the concern about President Trump being a racist, is it overblown? Stick around. It's coming up, 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So we have no music, by, no bumper music by the Pukes. Uh-huh. All right, now here, here, here's some of the songs on, on their, their, their record. Gum in Your Hair, Murder, They'll Never Find You, My Fault, Execution, Ketchup, Gravestones, and then the internationally famous donkey song, whatever the heck that is. But, okay, gee, and this is the guy, all right, the felon who tries to stab his ex-girlfriend with a knife, and we're just going to give that case away. You wonder what's going on. All right. Um, over the weekend, the, the continuing story appears to be, what did President Trump say in this immigration meeting? Um, did he use a word that we cannot use on the radio to describe some of these African countries? Um, he denies it. And people who were at the meeting say, no, he, he didn't say this. You know, we had some tough language, but he didn't say that. Uh, the Democrat in the meeting, Senator Dick Durbin, says, yes, he, he did. Um, uh, go figure. But everybody understands that there was some tough talk. And now that the story all weekend has been, oh, is President Trump a racist? And, you know, the racist, the racism card is being played. You know, oh, this is just terrible. How can we ever get past this? You've got diplomats in Haiti who are upset and all those different types of things. And I, as I said on Friday, um, obviously, use if he used this term, uh, that I think is beneath the the dignity of the president of the United States. I I, I do, although I have no doubt that other presidents, you know, in private, you know, you know, gave it to subordinates or gave it to members of Congress, both loud and dirty, so they would remember it. But but again, it's a different type of climate, and I think the president, if he said this and he says he he didn't. Um, I, I think the, the the president, you know, should watch what he says because again, it creates this firestorm. But th- there's a larger issue that is getting lost in all the terms about, you know, it was this racist or not, and and, and that is the the underlying policy, and that's what I want to talk about is our big story number one. The the reason this comment, if it was made, was supposedly made, was in the context of a debate about our immigration laws. In 1990, the first President Bush created this program um, that essentially allows people, for humanitarian purposes, to temporarily, and the key word is temporarily, come into this country if... There is a natural disaster 
for example, that hits your country, an earthquake, you know, massive flooding, or in the cases of civil war. And it is under that program that people from El Salvador and Haiti and other countries, including European countries like like Bosnia, were admitted into the United States on on a temporary basis. And the way the law works is you can stay in this country until this country makes a certification that the conditions that that led you to be able to come in initially that that, that they've pretty much been taken care of. So, all right, if you have. You know, El Sa- Haiti or El Salvador devastated by by an earthquake or whatever. So you know you've got these problems. People flee. They come into this country. Ten years pass. Fifteen years pass, and the infrastructure gets largely rebuilt. Now that's not to say that the quality of life in Haiti or the quality of life in El Salvador is on a par with the quality of the life in the U.S. It is just to say that the conditions that let you come into this country in the first place, they, they've been taken care of. All right, we, we've rebuilt the roads. They've rebuilt the schools. They've kind of recovered from the earthquake. So under the law, you've got to go back. And that is what that is what Trump was discussing. Um, you've got the Democrats that were pushing to say, okay, we have all these people who've come in from El Salvador, they've come in from Haiti, they've come in from these other countries, and you, you know, you're ending this program and you want to send them back. And, and that's where they get into the heated conversation and, you know, and, and Trump is saying, okay, why, why do we have so many people, you know, coming in from these fill-in-the-blank countries if, if he said it? But what's getting lost in the overall conversation it is the wisdom of the program to begin with. Does it make sense? And I guess this is really the issue. If you have people who have been admitted into this country on a temporary basis because of specific hardship conditions in their country, oh, my God, there was this earthquake. Well, does that mean that they should automatically be able to stay in this country forever? Or at some point in time, don't they have to go back? And look, and I'm not going to argue, and I don't think anybody, every, even people, you know, from Haiti or El Salvador who were offended by what the president said or didn't say. I mean, I don't think any of them are going to argue that, like, Haiti is a particular garden spot when compared to life in the United States. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, that's the frustrating thing of, about these conversations for the last three or four days. Is President Trump racist or not? I don't know. I don't look in the man's heart. But, but it is the policy matter that's gotten pushed to the side. And that policy matter is if somebody comes in from any country, and keep in mind, you know, they, we did this with Bosnia when there was a civil war. Well, okay, the civil war subsides, and people who came in, unless they figured out a way to stay, like getting a green card, they've got to go back. We did that with Bosnia. Shouldn't we be doing it with El Salvador and Haiti and other places? Or is it just inherently racist to allow people from predominantly, again, minority countries, I guess, um, to come in, minority when compared to the United States, to come into this country on a temporary basis. Is it racist if we say, no, at some point in time, you got to go back? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, candidly, that's the way the program was always intended to work. It was never set up as permanent residence for somebody it to, to come into this country. All right, you've got bad conditions because there's an earthquake. Fine, come into this country with the understanding 
that you're going to have to go back to where you came from at some point in time. Is that racist? And is that unreasonable? I think not. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1228, Jeff Wacker, WTMJ. Now, on Friday, President Trump sends out a tweet saying he never said anything derogatory about Haitians other than the fact that Haiti is obviously a very poor and troubled country. He's never said to take them out. It's made up by the Democrats. He says, I have a wonderful relationship with Haitians, probably should record future meetings. Unfortunately, there is no trust. Um, he also, you know, goes on to say that, again, this is one of the, he's not a racist. Matter of fact, he's the least racist person that anybody, ever, anybody would have ever met. I, again, I don't know about that. And again, I, you, don't, you can't look into people's hearts other than the fact that you've got these terms that are being thrown around and it's all counterproductive. I understand we live in this world of, of gotcha. But the larger issue, and by deciding to make this an issue, essentially immigration reform isn't going to get done anytime soon. But as to the fact whether or not people who come into this country temporarily, based on natural disasters or civil war or whatever, should be able to stay permanently, the answer has to clearly be no. And I don't know that there's any country in the world that would have a different policy to that. Big story over the weekend about how lots of people who are in this country illegally are now heading to Canada and how Canada is already saying we, we can't take these people. You know, we, we there are limits as to what we can do. Why don't people understand that in the United States? All right, coming up, big story number two. Mo and Larry step out for a donut, and Curly hits the button. 12.35, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. John Gruden is leaving the broadcast booth for the sidelines of the Oakland Raiders. Who should replace him on Monday nights? Greg Matzik shares his list and wants to hear yours this evening. Tune in. Greg's got a full show, 7.45 this evening, um, Sports Central, which runs from 6 until 9. I don't know how I would have reacted. You, you've probably heard the story by now. Um, Saturday morning, 8.05 in the morning, Hawaii time. So you've got ret- – now, keep in mind, Hawaii – it is on edge for a lot of reasons, but you've got this crazy dictator in, in North Korea who has been threatening to, you know, develop nuclear capability and sending ballistic missiles, and Hawaii would be one of the prime targets. Why? Because it's kind of closer to North Korea than, um, say, it, say like Los Angeles would be. So you know, Hawaii is one of these things, one of these places that is on, is on edge. So what happens is 8.05 Saturday morning, if you haven't heard this story, people are in Hawaii, and all of a sudden cell phones start blaring. You know, if you've got your cell phone set so you get one of these emergency warnings, TV stations get broken into. You know, it's all this, hey, you know, there, there's a warning. The message that is sent out, and again, on people's cell phones, for example, here's what it says, emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. <laughs> okay, you know, you're waking up, you're making blueberry pancakes, you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, oh, there's a ballistic missile headed towards Hawaii. So then, I mean, the stories of the people who were there, what, what do you do? I mean, the, the idea is like shelter in place, but the reality is, unlike, you know, when we were kids, and, you know, they'd have these drills. Remember these drills? Grew, you're too young for this. But when I was a kid, they, they'd, 
they do these nuclear defense drills. I, I was of that age. And what they would do is they take you out of class. And I always remember they, they take us down into the basement, you know, or into the wood shop. And you'd get under like the big like drafting tables and things like that. And I even I, just, I was a smart butt even then. I, I even remember one of the teachers yelling at me because it occurred to me even at the age of seven that if there was a nuclear bomb coming, being under, you know, like one of these wooden tables wasn't going to make much difference. And I remember saying that, and I was told to, you know, shut up or whatever. So, I, I you know, I haven't changed much over, over the years. But anyhow, th- these people in Hawaii, you're getting this message that essentially said your life is going to be over. And what what do you do? And it's been interesting, you know, like reading the stories of the people who got these messages. They're, you know, they're just talking about how they, they start calling their kids we're sending texts to their children on the mainland saying, you know, we understand that, you know, we're about to be annihilated. We love you. Can you imagine this? Just just what's going on? Well, okay. How did this happen? Because there was not a ballistic missile. Well, apparently what happened is there was a shift change and a training exercise going on in the state emergency services area. And what happened is, I presume that Mo and Larry were out um, ha- having a donut, and Curly was left behind at the computer. And apparently, what what happens is, the worker there's this drop down screen from a computer menu that that comes out, and one says, "Test missile alert," which would be this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. The other says missile alert, which is, you know, put your head between your legs and get ready to kiss your butt goodbye. Okay, so Curly, who's apparently alone with this, he hits missile alert, telling everybody that their lives are going to essentially be over, you know, in a fiery conflagration very, very soon. So, all right, so this missile alert goes out. What happens is emergency management people within three minutes realize that Curly has hit the wrong button. Okay. All right. So I guess that you understand how this, this happens. You know, nyuk, 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 Curly has hit the wrong button. They know within three minutes that people all across Hawaii have been told that their lives are going to be ended in, you know, like a fiery explosion. But, but they know it. They don't do anything. They send out a tweet at 10 minutes after the after this happening saying, oh, never mind, even though they knew at three minutes. And it's not until 38 minutes later that they fully go out and and retract this, um, making for undoubtedly the longest 38 minutes of a lot of people's lives. And now, so now they're going back. And, and again, it, it is pretty much what it is. They had one employee, one employee who had the ability to hit this button and tell everybody that your, your lives are going to be ended. No reviews of this, no supervisory thing, no needing multiple people to sign off, just Curly hitting the wrong button on the drop-down computer. And then no follow-up to this. Nobody being able to come in and say, all right, we, we knew 10 seconds or we knew three minutes into this that this was a mistake We've got to immediately tell people that the world as they know it is not ending. They weren't able to effectively retract this for 38 minutes. Okay, our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I'm glad I'm not in Hawaii, okay, because this would have been a very, very unnerving, you know, 30 minutes of one's life. But here to me is, is the bigger story of this. 
I mean, do you have confidence in our early warning system? I mean, if something like this can happen, can we believe, you know, can we put any sort of reliability at all in us being in, you know, communicating? And I guess, you know, my, my concern is this was a state matter. This was the state emergency, you know, management services that were able to do that. But is the federal system any different? And, and how do people react? I mean, it, it's almost a miracle that people didn't, that there wasn't a, a loss of, of life or something like that from people who think that they've only got X amount of minutes to live deciding to act in a crazy fashion. Oh, by the way, the person that did this, Curly, my note says, that he, he's just he's going to be reassigned what reassigned 414-799-1620 jim and grafton jim you're on wtmj good afternoon hi thanks for taking my call hi, jim. hey jeff just thinking about this um there were reports that people were driving incredibly erratic you know afterwards you know trying to get to a safe place so number one there those people are putting people at danger for no reason yes number two think about the people if you're out there and you have a choice to either maybe take your own life yeah. or be incinerated by a nuclear bomb you know, I mean, just think about that. There are going to be people who went out and killed themselves over this, you know. Um, and this guy is reassigned. He should be in jail. And, <laughs> well, at uh, least fired. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I mean, that, see, that that's the miracle. I mean, and it, interestingly, I've been reading a number of stories about people who really, okay, you think this is your last 10 or 15 minutes on Earth. You know, what What do you, you know, what do you do? How do you spend that? And you're, you're right. Maybe it's somebody who says, I've always wanted to drive 150 miles an hour. Let's see how fast I can take that curb. It's a miracle that bad stuff didn't happen. Yeah, and, you know, and I'm kind of waiting as I've become cynical with the whole Trump thing. I'm just waiting for someone to say something. It's his fault. I mean, it's got to be coming. I I just sort of imagine. Thanks for the call. Well, you, you, I mean, again, you, 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 you know, you, you wonder, uh, and, you know, under these circumstances, I mean, I don't know, again, I, I don't know what you do. I mean, shelter in place, and what, how, how do you do this? But just imagine the absolute terror on the part of, of the people who experience this. Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Yeah, this is just, this is just unreal, uh, I can't believe that they don't have a backup. Like, why Curly had the finger on the button, but Mo and Mo and Larry aren't there to say, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Or let's double check this. Well, right. You would you yeah. would think yeah. that there would have to be at least a couple layers. You know, a couple people who would have to look at this and say, yeah, there's an emergency situation. Not just one guy who doesn't know how to hit a button on a drop down screen on a computer. That's scary to me. Well, that's uh, I don't put a little bit of doubt as to what's going on. Plus, the guy got reassigned. Most other places would fire you right away. I, I, you know, if this is not a fireable offense, Mike, I got to tell you, I don't know, I don't know what, what that would possibly be, you know. But I don't know. No, thanks for calling. No, it's it, it's just an amazing sort of situation that's going on out there. And again, they haven't fired the guy. They've simply said, "Well, all right, just don't do it again." But but to me, the larger issue again isn't. This scare that happened on, on Saturday, but it's rather, is this a vulnerability? I mean, l- let's let's look in Wisconsin. I mean, is there one person, you know, could Curly hit that button and do the same thing? Do you have checks in place? Do you have protocols in place to make sure that, number one, you are going to be able to effectively warn people in the event that there is something bad that is potentially going to happen? And number two, is there a control to make sure that you're not going to unnecessarily scare people um, when there's not a situation? Boy, what a horrible situation. All right. 
coming up next. The President and the Porn Star. Stick around. It's Big Story number 3. It's 1245. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1249. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The Bucks will look for some revenge against the Heat on Wednesday night. That's when they play host to Miami. In search of evening the season series at one game apiece, Ted and Dennis have our buckshot coverage. It's tomorrow. It starts at 6.40. Just kind of one final thought. It's um, it, it does show what you do with Trump derangement syndrome. I have one of the texts. Jeff, what to do? My daughter, who drinks the California Kool-Aid, is blaming Trump for causing people to be worried about this ballistic missile threat. It's a serious problem, maybe even a wake-up call. Right, and, and just to be real clear here, I, I understand that there's people who want to blame President Trump for everything from hangnails to, I don't know, the fact that their car won't start on a cold winter morning, but this had nothing to do with the federal government. This was the state in Hawaii emergency management system, and it was a guy who worked for the state system. There was no federal connection other than it does kind of raise this issue in my mind of, you know, really, are these kind of notifications, are they going to be handled by the one guy who doesn't know what to click on out of the drop-down menu or the list of links or whatever? Just saying. All right, big story number three. This was breaking Friday afternoon. Um, of course, in, in the in the Me Too age, a lot of attention being paid to, you know, um, women who claim over the years that they were abused. A lot of stuff goes back a, a number of years. Over the weekend, the Wall Street Journal runs a story that is denied by the Trump administration that shortly before the election, a Trump lawyer arranged for the payment of $130,000 to an adult film store. Here's the start, the way the journal, the Wall Street Journal reports it. A lawyer for President Donald Trump arranged a $130,000 payment to a former adult film star a month before the 2016 election as part of an agreement that precluded her from publicly discussing an alleged sexual encounter with Mr. Trump, according to people familiar with the matter. Michael Cohen, who spent nearly a decade as a top attorney at the Trump Organization, arranged payment to the woman, Stephanie Clifford, in a October of 2016, after her lawyer negotiated the non-disclosure agreement with Mr. Cohen, Ms. Clifford, whose stage name is Stormy Daniels, which I was mentioning earlier, grew your, your porn star name, if you want to figure out what it would be, you take your your pet as a kid and you pick the street you lived on as a kid and you can put them together in either order. For, for example, I had a dog, the dog's name was Sunshine, we lived on Acacia Road, so it would be... Sunshine Acacia or Acacia Sunshine. But that, that's how you figure it out. So her name was Stormy Daniels. Um, uh, Mr. Cl- Ms. Clifford, whose stage name is Stormy Daniels, has privately alleged the encounter with Mr. Trump took place after they met at a July 2006 celebrity golf tournament on the shore of Lake Tahoe. Uh, these people said Mr. Trump married Melania Trump in 2005. Um, and again, the Trump administration said there's no truth to this. This is these are old allegations. They were out there. No, no truth at all. I don't know whether you know they they pay. Then and of course the stories over the weekend are here. You have this guy. He's he's paying or arranging to have this woman you know paid hush money you know so she doesn't tell her story and you keep it from the American people. My 
my point is, and again, this is one, it's like what was supposedly said in, in that immigration meeting. I wasn't there. I don't know. I have no idea what the nature of the relationship between, you know, then real estate magnate, I think he was on TV at the time, Donald Trump, and that this woman was, if anything, in 2005 or 2006. Don't know. I guess the question becomes, though, at this point, does anybody care? Does it does it matter if she reached some sort of settlement privately with President Trump that doesn't involve public money so that, you know, whatever whatever relationship she might have had with him, she's agreed that she's not going to tell her story publicly. Does anybody care about that? Do you care about that? 414-799-1620. It's big story number three. We discuss next. It's 1254. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, coming up in just a couple minutes. Why was he out on bail in the first place? Is it time to tear down the Milwaukee Mile once and for all and put up condos? And what's the real future of Alpine Valley? That's all coming up in just a couple minutes. Right now, I, I, I just posed this question. Wall Street Journal, big story over the weekend. Uh, Donald Trump or his lawyer apparently paid, allegedly, paid this former porn star or current porn star $130,000 in order for her to not tell her story. Um, the story is purportedly that she had a relationship with the now president back in 2005. I, I have to tell you, I mean, it's just, I, I think this type of stuff, I just don't think people care about this at, at this point in time, given everything that, that's going on. Would would it surprise me? And I again, I don't know, but would it surprise me that President Trump at the time might have had a relationship with this woman? No, it, it wouldn't. But does it matter at this point? Bob in Hartford. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good. What do you no, think? It, it, it doesn't matter to me one bit. And, I mean, the lady's credibility should be shot, for one. I mean, she basically, if if he did pay her, then she basically breached the contract. Well, she's not talking. I mean, the, these are things okay. that, that, you know, like the lawyers obtain documents and it's stuff like that. But, but as far as, I mean, if this happened in 2005 or 2006, do you think that this... If it happened, it affects his ability to be president in 2018. Not one bit. And earlier today in one of the programs, there, this is total waste of time and ink on the paper. Yeah. Talk about some of the positive things that are going on in the country. Well, I, I, all these goofy, you know, witch hunts. Well, I mean, thanks. I, I do think, I, I do think that people are starting to there's just so much relentless negativity when it comes to the Trump administration and the president including a lot of which which admittedly is is brought on by himself that I, I think there is this this fatigue factor it's like oh my goodness gracious okay you know so so he had an affair in two if it and again I, I don't know if it's true or not I have no idea so he had an affair with this woman in 2005 or 2006 and you know she's not alleging apparently you know she's not the one that's bringing out these claims um you know does anybody care and i think the bottom line is you know most people just just simply don't at this point in time maybe they would have if there just wasn't so much other controversy but the constant controversy i think people just end up getting numb to it all right coming up in just a couple minutes why the you know what was this guy out of jail in the first place what what do you do with alpine valley and what do you do with the milwaukee miles stick around it's 1259 it's 108. 
This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. During the break, Eric and I were just talking about Menominee Falls, and that that's the situation that happened on Friday with the kid with the gun. It, Crazy story. It, it is. Crazy story. Okay. It, I, I We don't know all the details, the who's, but I, I have a pretty good idea as to what happened, and, you know, we're, we're going to... We are going to try to help the district attorney's office out here. All right, if you haven't been following the story, here, here's what happened. Um, Friday afternoon, um, Shady Lane Elementary School in Menominee Falls. There is, uh, they're, they're not identifying the child, but they say the child is between four and seven years old. So kindergarten, first grade, somewhere in there. Um, end of the school day, the teacher, the teacher, you know, they're helping the kids get ready to go home, the teacher was placing something into the child's backpack, all right? And the teacher notices that the backpack seems heavier than it should have been. Hmm, all right, let's go. What do you got in here, Bricks? They open up the, the, the backpack, and they find a handgun um, that, that's in the student's backpack. I don't know if it was loaded or not, but it, they find a handgun in the in the backpack, um, what happens is um, they then, teacher's aide, takes the gun to the main office without the child seeing it. The police are then called in to investigate. Uh, the superintendent of school says, although it was a mistake, it was clearly a negligent one, and the Menominee Falls Police Department is handling the situation from a legal standpoint. Um, so far, nobody is saying where who's who the gun belonged to um the reports are it's not it doesn't belong to the parents um and it was not it didn't come from somebody at school said the child's parents were baffled by the gun's appearance uh while police this is what channel six reported while police declined to comment on camera they did issue a statement that seemed to indicate the investigators have located the gun's owners we've referred reports to the waukesha county district attorney's office we're waiting for their review to be finished and wait for them to advise us on how they want to proceed we don't want to place judgment on any individual we just want to make sure as individuals working with firearms they recognize safety among young children uh the conclusion is that this handgun was inadvertently put in the wrong bag the student's backpack whoever was whoever did this and again i don't think they're looking at the parents i don't know if they're looking at other relatives or or whatever a student knows it was in there didn't show it student just the, the kid didn't know this and so now they're trying to decide my again my my sense here is my sense is that somebody's loading, somebody's, you know, putting their gun into a, a bag and inadvertently puts it into the, the kid's knapsack instead of somewhere where it was. Again, I don't know if it's family members or, or what. They're, they're not. They're not saying. The parents appear to be baffled by this, but it appears to be a a mistake that this gun ended up in the kid's backpack. All right, just one segment on this. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let us assume for the sake of argument that that's probably what's here. You you have somebody who intends to put their gun into, you know, their case or their pack or whatever, and purely by mistake puts it in this child's knapsack. The kid then goes to school and school officials, you know, find it. All right, the person who put the gun in the wrong place, should they be charged with a crime? 
And let us again assume that this is it's it's a mistake. You know, it's one where, you know, you're getting ready to pack up your, your your firearm or whatever, and you're getting ready to put it in a bag, and you put it in the wrong bag. And again, police aren't saying who did this. It doesn't appear to be, the, the parents appear to be baffled by this. But, you know, somebody who presumably had access to the, the child's knapsack doesn't appear they did it intentionally. They did it by mistake. Is that or should it be a crime? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk at text line. Now, obviously, you can play this out in a lot of different ways because all sorts of bad things could happen. Again, I don't know if the gun was loaded or not. I don't know if that makes any difference. Um, at the same time, you know, something something could have happened. The kid could have pulled out the gun. You know, who knows? But but nothing did. The child didn't even know it was in the backpack. But if you're the district attorney, what do you do with something like this? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you how I answer that question, and we'll discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you're on the line, please hold on. It's 114. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 116, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just to give you an idea, we're, uh, you're, you're split according to the texts I'm getting. One text, honest mistake, no harm, no foul. The owner of the gun at most should have to take another gun safety course. All right, then in contrast, the gun owner should be fined. This is negligence of a gun owner. You should know at all times where your firearm is and where it's going. You're putting in the way it should be fully unloaded with a trigger lock. If the person didn't think it was their bag, they should have taken the same bag. 414-799-1620. And again, I'm assuming for sake of argument that what happened here is somebody in the room, bunch of bags, has the gun, are putting the gun in what they think is their bag. Instead, they're putting it in the knapsack of the small child who then takes the gun to school inadvertently, assuming that it is just this honest sort of mistake, if you want to use that phrase, should there be consequences? Let's start with Brittany in Brookfield. Brittany, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. What do you think? Um, absolutely. There, there, there should be a higher standard. When you own a gun, when you have a firearm, you know exactly what kind of, um, what, what that's capable of. So you can't just make a simple mistake like putting a gun in a child's backpack, which I already just don't have enough information. But right. <laughs> I, I just can't imagine. Absolutely. There should be consequences. Uh, I don't, I don't know what those are, but no way that they should just get away with nothing. What if it was? What if it was a? What if it was a mistake? You you got uh, again. You know, it's you, there's there's a couple bags. They look similar. Maybe you keep your gun, you know, in a in a knapsack or something like that, and you I just mean, put it in the wrong one. Keeping your gun in a book bag, we already have a problem, right? I mean, you're talking a you're talking a child book bag. I can't yep. imagine any responsible uh, gun owner keeping their their gun in a book bag but you know there you have to make sure it should be in a case it should be locked away it should be certainly out of reach of children which clearly was already not happening if you mistakenly throw it in the wrong bag right Uh, i work around kids all day and and there's there's just no way that they're ever you know anywhere near anything like that right (laughs) well no and again and and i think at least what what i'm able to piece together from this this entire scenario thanks to call Brittany, it is it is a, and I'm going to use the phrase mistake in the sense of it appears to be kind of an accidental sort of thing, presumably by somebody who had access to the, the, the child's, like, book bag. 414-799-1620. Darren in South Milwaukee. Darren, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, how you doing? What do you think? 
Well, I'm just laughing at the somber, forgiving tone. If this had been a Milwaukee school, the mm-hmm. child, how old was the child, four? Four to seven, yeah, first grade or he kindergarten. Would been, he would have been charged as an adult. You guys would have been on here for 16 segments saying, where's the father? Why did this Well, the kid wouldn't have been. You don't think the kid would have been charged with the adult? I was, uh, being, adult. I was being facetious. Got it. Fair enough. Okay. I was being a little sarcastic. Okay. Not really, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So your your point your point is your point is right. So your point is that if this was MPS and say an, an inner city kid who showed up with a, with a gun in the backpack, everybody would be screaming that whoever put that gun in needs to be charged criminally. Everybody on your show that mm-hmm. called in, okay, guarantee it. Okay, all right. Thanks for well that that that's. I, that's what I'm. I, I think that that is a fair point, and that's actually what I was curious about with the audience reaction. Because, you know, the, the truth is, Darren, I, I do think that that's fair, and your comment is fair. I, I one of the things I, I have done in twenty years of twenty three years of doing this job, it's always reverse the situation. If this were a liberal, not a conservative, how would people react? If this was Barack Obama, not Donald Trump, how would people react? And I think I think that that's a fair comment. comment. You know, same situation. You know, you have a kid that shows up at MPS, same exact situation with a gun in their backpack, and that's the story. It was put in there, you know, inadvertently. Would people think there should be charges? And I'll tell you what I think. I I think the answer is yes. Now, I am not saying that, for example, if it was this just innocent mistake, I'm not saying that people should, you know, I'm not talking about putting somebody in prison for 10 or 15 years. But, yeah, I, I do think that there needs to be a penalty, mistake or not. When you are dealing with firearms and children, putting a gun, and again, I don't know if it was loaded or not, putting a gun inadvertently in a kid's knapsack and then having that kid take it off to school, again, all a big mistake, Yeah, I, I think that there needs to be something that the criminal justice system gets involved in. And maybe, uh, again, maybe it's a fine for doing it. You know, maybe it's, you know, some type of community education or something like that. But if you are going to be a firearm owner, you have, I think, a higher responsibility. And that is you got to know where that gun is. And if something bad happens, you know, you have there has to be a degree of accountability. Now, like I say, does that mean you put somebody who did this, you know, in prison for 15 or 20 years? Well, no, you, you don't do that. But at the same time, I do think you have to say there is a consequence for handling a firearm in this fashion. Tony in New Berlin. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about all this? I, I guess my comment is, I don't know if you remember the incident out at Elmbrook Church. I do. The point. lady who left the loaded gun in the, in like the, it was like, it was in the bathroom stall or in the bathroom of the women's bathroom, right? Yes. And there were children. There was Bible study. There were things going on. And I don't think anything was done to her. I think you're right. I think they looked at different charges and couldn't figure out anything to charge her with and, 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 did, did nothing. I think that's that's my recollection, at least as well. Yeah. So I guess my comment is that they haven't changed the responsibility part of concealed carry from that incident. There should be nothing done here either. Well, I think that. Thanks again, Tony. I I, I got to go back and, and look at that case. I think the DA's office wanted to do something and couldn't couldn't find a statute that fit. Didn't think like disorderly conduct or something like that 
would have fit for some reason. This might be a little bit different because you're talking about guns and handling the firearms around children and things like that. If I were the DA's office in Waukesha, though, I, I would be taking a hard look at the statutes. And again, not for the idea of necessarily putting whoever did this in prison for 10 or 15 years. It's not that type of case. But again, I do think there needs to be an element of punishment when by mistake or not, you send a firearm to school with a kindergartner or a first or a second grader, period. It's 123. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So why in the world was this guy out in the first place? And here's the story. And and these stories go through me because this could happen to you. It could happen to me. Um, Sunday morning in Racine, about 1040 in the morning, outside of Festival Foods. This is Mount Pleasant. So outside of the Festival Foods, it's 1040. These people, it's I, it's a husband and wife, right? They're doing, uh, they're, they're, they're shopping. What happens is there's a so they're they're in the parking lot at this festival foods. There's a a car which turns out to be stolen, which is um, it ends up it's driven by a 17 year old named Isaiah de Groot of Racine. What apparently happens is that this it's a Toyota Sequoia. Um, the sheriff's deputy sees the car, notices suspicious behavior, and then runs the license plate. Okay, so he sees the car, runs the license plate, and the license plate doesn't match the car. Okay, so you got a pretty good indication the car is stolen. What happens is, um, and it was, turned out, stolen car from Milwaukee County. So what happens is the Toyota pulls into this parking lot, Cole's parking lot. There's a Festival Foods there, whatever. Deputy follows the car in. Now, suspicious behavior. It's 1040 in the morning yesterday, or on Sunday, that is, and the, the license plate doesn't match the car. So the deputy puts on on the bubble lights, all right? The guy driving the car, this 17-year-old scumbag, um, takes off, hits the gas, um, and starts fleeing at a high rate of speed. They only go, it's really not a pursuit, um, because I don't think the car, I'm not sure the deputy follows him, but the 17-year-old driving the stolen car gets about 500 yards and then crashes the car, ends up hitting this this couple, a 47-year-old woman and a 53-year-old man, they're struck. They get transported to Frederick Memorial Hospital. Um, thankfully, they're, they're going to live. But what happened is the, the guy driving the car takes off, high rate of speed, um, smashes into a pole, loses control of the car. Then, then this 17-year-old flees on foot, gets out of the car, starts running away, and ultimately they chase him for about a half a mile. So he's driving the stolen car. He's smacked into the two people, hurt them, and he runs for about a half a mile. Meanwhile, the deputy and bystanders are working to save the lives of the pedestrians who had some serious injuries. Uh, The sheriff down there says these injuries we think would have been catastrophic had there not been immediate medical attention, you know, applied. Um, and but but they did, and so I mean the the good news is that apparently um, while seriously injured, you know th- this couple is going to survive. All right, so then you get to the dazzling detail about the seventeen-year-old. Um, what happened is the the seventeen-year-old at the time of the crash was out on bond for felony charges of discharging a firearm from a vehicle and two counts of first-degree recklessly endangering safety, and that was in connection 
with a shooting that took place on October 30th. According to the report, the guy followed another vehicle after cutting it off, became confrontational with the driver, then shot at the vehicle as the victim drove away. All right. According to court records, he posted a $2,500 bond and then was released on those charges on November 13th. So here you have a guy who is involved in, in a shootout, essentially. So and I, I bring this up because if you think the courts in Milwaukee are, are out of control, and they are, I mean, it, it's not a new, unique phenomena. You have this 17-year-old that is involved in a shootout in November, gets caught they charge him with all sorts of crimes, and the court system can't wait to turn around and put him back out on the street on a $2,500 bond. I, uh, I don't know if it was cash or signature. doesn't matter. It, it's ridiculously low one way or the other. And then two and a half months later, he's driving a stolen car, ends up trying to flee the police, hit, almost kills two people, and then runs away. Why, 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 why? Won't we lock these people up, put high bails on them, keep them off the streets so they can't be out there hurting, potentially killing innocent people? I just asked this question, and I ask it over and over and over again, and I guess it's one of the reasons I wouldn't be a very good judge, because I wouldn't have let somebody like this out on a $2,500 bond, because you know, sure as night follows day, that he would do something like he did on Sunday. It was foreseeable. It was predictable. What are you going to do? I guess we just live in fear of these creeps. Thank goodness that this couple was not killed, but it's only by essentially an act of God. 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I wish these judges would, would really think of, of, of this. And I, you know, I was talking about what happened Sunday, 1040 in the morning, the 17-year-old punk who is out on bail, $2,500 bail for a shootout. You know, that, that he's involved in driving a stolen car, pulls into a, you know, a parking lot, police officer follows him, and they run the license plate, and they see that the license plate doesn't match the car, so that tells you it's stolen, turns on the bubble lights, and the guy takes off. This is in a parking lot down in Mount Pleasant. High rate of speed. I don't even think it was a chase, necessarily, because the, the crash happened after only a couple hundred yards. I think this was just this creep who is trying to get away from the cops, slams into this couple, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm only going to read part of the text I got, but somebody texts me says, I know this family personally. It's completely unfair that this trash will have no accountability for their actions. And then, you know, talks about how while the the, the couple is going to survive, in particular, identifies some catastrophic injuries to at least one of the two. Now, I haven't confirmed that, but it wouldn't necessarily surprise me and say, okay, here here you have this person. There's going to be no compensation to the person for having their life changed forever because you know the guy, the 17 year old driving the driving the stolen car while out on $2,500 bail, you, you know that there's not insurance. You know that there's no financial responsibility. Um, and, and you have people whose lives are forever changed. And now, you know, presumably, presumably the 17-year-old, now again, you never know what the court system's going to do, but presumably now he will be spending the next hopefully 20 or 30 years behind bars. But the bigger issue is he shouldn't have been out in the first place. He shouldn't have been in a position to have done what he did on Sunday morning. And when, 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 when will the court system wake up 
to that. And, and this idea that, well, you know, we, we're going to set a bail and we're going to set a low bail because we want to make sure he gets out. Well, okay, that, that's, that's fine. But part of the purpose of bail is also trying to make sure that he does not reoffend and present a danger to the community. And um, whoever set this bail got it really, really wrong and has, again, by letting this guy out in the first place, has contributed to putting him in an opportunity to commit these crimes which have caused these devastating effects. Incredibly frustrating. Hey, a quick programming note. Uh, This is going to be interesting. At the start of the show on Thursday, we're going to be joined for what I'm told is a Ask Any Questions You Want interview with a guy named Michael Haas. You might not know that name, but Michael Haas is the current director of the State Elections Commission. You will remember the, the now discredited and defunct Government Accountability Board, the, the board that went off on this, you know, went off on the the John Doe witch hunt and has been the subject of the investigative report leaks. Um, you know, there were leaks of stuff that shouldn't have been leaked, and you had the the report by the attorney general saying, well, we believe crimes were committed. We just can't figure out who committed the crimes. The Government Accountability Board, of course, was discredited it was disbanded and it was turned into um the you have the elections commission was part of it and you have the ethics commission which is the other part of it mike haas is the director of the state elections commission he's he is a lawyer before he was a lawyer he was a aide to tom loftus who was a big-time democrat the assembly minority leader back in the 90s he ran for this would be haas ran for office as a democrat a couple times failed lost lost in those races no discredit in that went to law school practice law and now you know is worked for the government accountability board was not directly involved in the john doe investigation although he, he did play a role in it kind of indirectly and that's one of the things i want to talk to him about in any event he he that position he needs to be confirmed by the senate and um, the, the state Senate, is, at least the Republican majority, has made it pretty clear that they have no interest in confirming him or the guy that runs the Ethics Commission. The members of these various commissions are, are defending the, these two, saying, no, we, we think they're going to do a good job. We don't think the criticism of them is fair. In any event, um, the confirmation hearings are supposed to be January 23rd. At least that's my understanding. And um, Mike Haas is kind of making the rounds of trying to say why, why he thinks he should have the job. And he's going to be in studio 10 after 12 on Thursday. And um, the, the deal was they, they made him available. He said he wants to talk. And I said, well, okay, I mean, we can ask anything, right? And they said, yeah, you might not be able to answer everything because of, like, legal concerns or whatever, legal concerns being attorney-client or whatever, but you can ask him anything you want. I said, okay. So under those circumstances, uh, we're going to be joined by the guy who is the head of the State Elections Commission who wants that job permanently but is operating under a bit of a cloud. So that's 1210 on Thursday. Gru, who's producing the show today, um, it was the most popular Christmas gift. It is also the most regretted Christmas gift of 2017-18. Would you want to guess what it is? You are you shrug your shoulders and you say no. Drones. All right, the the big, you know, the, the cost of, you know, drones, the things that, you know, the you you can fly with the remote controls and things like that. The the price of drones came down dramatically. I mean, it used to be 
you'd have to spend hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars to get a drone. Nowadays, you can get some of these basic drones for, you know, the, low, the cheaper ones in the 50 to $100, you know, range. So all these people went out and they got these drones to try to fly stuff. Okay, so very, very popular gift this Christmas. You might ask, why? Why is this the most regretted gift? Because, <laughs> at least according to the story in USA Today, all these people got drones, and a lot of them did not know how to fly them because – so they get out. Oh, I got the drone. You start flying it. Next thing you know, the drone disappears. Apparently, a large number – they won't give a percentage, but a substantial number of people who got these as gifts have now lost the drones. They go out in the backyard. They fly the thing. They fly it too high. The drone takes off. They crash the drone, and it's just it, – it's kind of like history. It's sort of like – you know, as a kid, you, you get that toy and or you give your kids a toy and, you know, that's the toy that they wanted. And like four hours after they open the package under the Christmas tree, the toy is smashed and it's busted. Well, this is that this is the equivalent of that for adults, apparently, because all these people get these drones. It's an hysterical story. They run out. They start flying them. Well, they fly them too high. And then the, the signal fades out and the things crash or they lose sight of them. And the things crash or the things just flat out crash. Bottom line being, all right, be careful what you wish for. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Milwaukee Mile and what do you do with it. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, think of the Wisconsin State Fair and then think of the Milwaukee Mile adjacent to the State Fair. The land is owned by the state of Wisconsin. Um, There was a time when that racetrack was used for lots of auto races. Well, that's that time is pretty much past. The uh, last major race that was there was in 2015. The There have been various promoters over the last several years that tried to make a go of it, and they never could. And, and so the truth of the matter is that um, you had some that were naive. That didn't work. You had some that were experienced. But the, the, the bottom line is, you know, auto racing in Milwaukee, gone on a major level and probably not going to come back. Right now, the track is used by runners. They have a, a racing school. Police use it for training. Um, but it, it generates almost no revenue beyond State Fair. Uh, the Journal Sentinel has a story, $286,000. That, that's like nothing. The debt service on that is like over a million dollars a year. So the reality is it's probably not going to be used as a comeback for auto racing. You'd need to put in, from what I'm told, a lot of money to upgrade the track. All right, so what do you use? What is the facility used for beyond that? Well, during State Fair, they park cars in the infield. So that generates revenue. And they also, um, they use the grandstand for, for the State Fair shows. You know, if, if you've ever been to a show at the State Fair, you know, you, you sit, you buy tickets, you sit in the grandstand. Um, then they put some, like, floor seats or, like, round-level seats on the track and then, like, into the infield, and the stage is in the infield. It is, with all due respect to my friends at the State Fair, it's a really, really crummy venue from a sound perspective, from a comfort perspective in which to, to see a show. It's a crummy venue. But nevertheless, it, it, it's there. So that, that's the real use. I mean, during, during the state fair, you use it for parking, you use it for the shows. If it were to go away, 
you would have to you know tear down the grandstands so the question becomes you know what where how do you supplement where do you park cars you know during the state fair if you don't have it you know where do you have the the shows how can you put 8000 people in if you don't have the grandstand what would the venue be but the truth of the matter is beyond the state fair it is I think it's fair to say it is a grossly underused and very expensive facility. So in the story in the Journal Sentinel is all over this. They're looking at, okay, what is the future of, you know, the, the Milwaukee Mile? Um, I Obviously, in a perfect world, you would, hey, we're going to have a renaissance of auto racing, and you're going to use it, you know, a couple times a month, and you're going to have thousands of people that come and sit and watch the auto racing. But nobody believes that, or at least very few people believe that that is a reality. Now, in you know West Allis, you know people are saying, "Hey, this land has some value, and if you were to turn this land over for private development, you know we think it might you know generate over like one point two billion dollars in private development for land right now that is grossly underused and belongs to the state. The state fair board says, "Well, okay." All right, tell us where we're going to – you do that. Tell us where we're going to have the shows. Tell us where we're going to park people. So let's tee this up, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand there is a nostalgia to this. I, I, I get it. But you've got very, very valuable property that, again, best-case scenario is grossly underused. And they're, they're paying a ton of money just in debt service for improvements they made. Let us tee this up. Is it time to say, all right, what we have to do is consider perhaps selling off that, allow private development, and use that revenue to perhaps, I don't know, build a, a better concert facility on you know another portion of the State Fair Park grounds? 414-799-1620. It does seem to me that you can't just keep doing what you're doing. You, you just you can't keep doing what you're doing. And to me, the question is going to be, you know, is there really going to be some other use for this? Again, besides parking during the 11 day run of the fair. What do you think? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Lee in Whitefish Bay. Lee, you're first. Hey. Hi, Lee. Uh, Jeff, I appreciate it. Yeah. Sure. I love the State Fair track. First time I was there, uh, I saw Marshall Teague win a race on the dirt. In a Hudson Hornet. Okay, so you go back a long time. Yeah, but it's a fantastic facility, and I haven't been on that track since October. But we we go there with the sports car club, the mm-hmm. SCCA. We go there once a month and do track days. Right. But you are correct. It needs to have more activity. But when we lost the track, the the race two years ago, uh, they went up to Road America. Right. And they get over 115,000 people yep. at Road America. So that kind of tells you that there's interest in this area. It's just the promoters have had a difficult time getting the people to come to the State Fair Park. Even though it's a great venue, uh, we lost the good date. We used to right. uh, run uh, the week after Indianapolis. But the facility is right. great. The track is wonderful. And just to tell you, Phoenix has a similar one-mile track. They are putting $78 million in to redo their grandstands. Now, actually, they're tearing one section of the grandstands down, and they're going to put terraced motorhome parking mm-hmm. where they had the front straightaway grandstands. 
But, so, uh, but I guess my question for you would be, Lee. You know, you've tried. You know, they've tried various promoters to to try to get auto racing back to Milwaukee, and they, they've all failed for for a variety of reasons. Um, and I guess my my question is. And, and you're exactly right. There's interest at Road America, and I get it. But at some point in time, is there anything that would convince us that, okay, another promoter is going to be able to succeed where all these other promoters have failed in the past? And like you're saying, any any key to even trying it would probably involve a commitment. They estimate you got to do upgrades on the track I'm looking at for about a million. Plus, you're talking about you know tens of millions for a grandstand. Even if you did that, is there any guarantee that we'd you know that, that you turned it into an auto racing mecca again? Oh, we don't need uh, any grandstand. Our okay. stands are brand new. They're they're less than uh, 14 years old. Right. Yeah, which That's is part of is part of where the debt service is. Yeah, but you right. were talking about like all the, the the stuff they're doing at Phoenix, which is all the like special things. Yeah, I, that, I, that's all special. I'm just saying that there's enough interest in auto racing uh, around the country that if we had the right promoter, uh, they could do the job. And if let's say the people from Road America were interested in having another event that they could, uh, they obviously have a way to reach. Some of these people, the the past promoters, have not been able to bring yeah. people into the event. Yeah. But it's okay. a spectacular track that. Uh, uh, well, again, no, and I, Lee, thanks for calling. I mean, look, and, and I understand the historic stuff and all, and and I, I I appreciate nostalgia as much as anything. But I guess from a business perspective, I mean, right now that is hemorrhaging money. It, it's just the reality. You've got all this debt service. What are the number I'm looking at? Debt service is like over a million dollars, maybe two million dollars a year. And you, you've got the car clubs that come out. It generates, what was that number I threw out? Less than $300,000 in, in revenue, uh, non-state fair revenue on property that at least some people say could generate $1.2 billion in economic revenue. You, 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 what's frustrating is you've got to have a plan. If, if you're going to keep it as an auto racing, you know, thing well then there's got to be somebody you know is there a promoter that could really come in and figure out how to make money off of it um and and i'm just i'm not seeing that but i'm willing to be talked out about it talked out of it we continue the conversation what is the future of the milwaukee mile and i understand there's all sorts of people say i i used to love going there i saw those big races it was the week after indy i went there with my parents i i just love it i get all that i understand it but you're talking about you know a major a major investment for the state that at best is grossly underutilized and at worst, you know, is something that maybe needs to be looked at being sold. All right, we continue the conversation. It's 155. This is Jeff Wagner. Well, the good news is, is I'm looking at the 10-day forecast. Uh, it it gradually gets warmer. By Thursday, it's the high supposed to be above freezing, and then it pretty much stays above freezing um, for the next, you know, 10 days or, or so, which is good. Some precipitation, you know, possibly some rain, maybe a little bit of snow and things like that. It doesn't look like anything major, but um, we're, we're now middle of January. You give me a sustained run. You give me a week or 10 days above freezing, and I'll, I will take it. I, I will take it un- <laughs> unhesitatingly because, you know, then we're, we're getting closer, you know, two more weeks left in January, and then February's a short month. All right. There is hope on the horizon. All right. So you might say to me, Mr. Smarty Pants, Mr. Know-it-all, all right, you're talking about the Milwaukee Mile. What would you do? Well, here here's here is what I would do. I, I 
it is too valuable a piece of property to simply not use it for automobile racing. I mean, the idea that it generate and, and a parking lot, the idea that you use the infield to park cars on, you know, during the state fair and, you know, you use that, that grandstand um, for, you know, a handful of days at the state fair. It is too valuable a piece of property, it seems to me, to be allowed to only be used that few days. So I think the question you have to face is you have to really ask yourself the serious question of, you know, can is auto racing in Milwaukee still viable? Not this pie in the sky stuff, not this, that or the other thing. You have to ask yourself seriously, you know, can can you use this on a semi-regular basis in order to generate revenue? Where was it? You know, and I understand they had some bad promoters, but they had some good promoters that had contacts who couldn't make it work. If you decide that you can't make it work, I mean, then I think you have to move to plan B. And plan B is what is the best use of that land? Can you sell part of it off to developers and then use some of the revenue that you generate from that to, I, I don't know, carve out, you know, building building a facility, maybe a, a small, you know, amphitheater where, you know, the people might actually want to go? Because let's face it, I mean, it, the, the the shows and you, you've got the shows at the grandstand, but acoustically it's crummy. No offense, but but it's crummy. And you know, people nowadays you want to sit in comfort. You don't necessarily want to sit on bleachers. Maybe you take some of that revenue. I I don't know. That that's for smarter minds than mine to figure out. But I I do know that you can't allow it to sit idle like it has. That just makes no sense at all to me. And that's where I, I think you need some some people with some visionary ideas to say, all right, what are we going to do ten years from now? Because if 10 years from now it's the same as it is today or the same it was 10 years ago, that, that, will, that will end up being a, a failure. And that's what the people on the State Fair Board, I think, have to, have to take on. No question about it. As long as we are talking about institutions and their future. I have been going to Alpine Valley in East Troy since Alpine Valley first opened up in the mid to late 70s. I remember going, seeing shows. Alpine Valley used to be the place, I mean, it seemed to me that they had a big show, sometimes a couple of weeks, but certainly almost every weekend they had some big show. I can't tell you, the. I've seen the Rolling Stones at Alpine Valley. I, I saw Fleetwood Mac back when they were really hot at Alpine Valley. I mean, uh, Jimmy Buffett on a regular basis. I can't tell you the shows that I've seen at Alpine Valley over the years. Um, Alpine Valley, though, you know, the, there's a couple things that are going on. First of all, it, it's hard to get to. Um, secondly, over the years, I think it was allowed to fall into disrepair. Um, I, I, you know, the, the parking lot becomes a mud pit, you know, when it, when it rains. Um, the, the, the venue, the structure itself, I think the sound is pretty good, but, but the structure, it just doesn't have the amenities that a lot of the newer places have. In addition, they have a huge problem in getting acts. I mean, it's not like it was in the 70s. Nowadays, first of all, there's not that many acts that can fill 
25, 30, 40,000 seat venues. There's just not that many acts that are out there. And a lot of those acts that are out there are playing stadiums. You know, now you've got Wrigley Field that's, you know, hosting a whole bunch of concerts. You've got, for example, Miller Park is going to have a, a series of concerts. You've got, you know, the venue at Summerfest that's being revamped. You, you've, and, and there's just not that many acts nowadays that that can fill those type of large venues. It's one of the reasons why, you know, Summerfest now has that, that separate pavilion with the BMO Harris Pavilion um, for, for the smaller type of acts. So Alpine Valley, um, for, for years, the last few years, and it was dark last year because, I mean, I think in my opinion, candidly, they just couldn't get any acts to come there. Um, their, their mainstays were Dave Matthews, Zach Brown, and Jimmy Buffett. Buffett played at Wrigley Field, and so under his contract, that meant he couldn't play at Alpine Valley. Um, I don't know if the Dave Matthews Band was even touring. Zach Brown played at at Summerfest, did one or two shows at at Summerfest, and those were the, the staples. They weren't around, so Alpine Valley closed. And there was all sorts of speculation about would it reopen, would it reopen again. You know, they said they were going to put all sorts of money into it. I don't know if they, they did or didn't. But um, now, you know, is the time to roll out the summer concert announcements. You know, Alpine Valley announced that Zach Brown, Zach Brown Band, was going to do two shows there in August. Buffett hasn't really started announcing his summer concert schedule yet, so you don't know if he might be coming back to Alpine Valley. Dave Matthews, which was, you know, Dave Matthews was one of the, the staples like I say, of of Alpine Valley. You know, the Dave Matthews Band would typically play two shows. Dave Matthews, the announcing today, he's at Summerfest. So, you know, Alpine Valley's announced schedule thus far is Zach Brown. Okay? Maybe, again, I, I don't know, haven't heard Buffett rumors one way or the other, but that's... That's two shows. Okay, Zach Brown plays two shows. Buffett plays one. And the truth of the matter is Buffett's been having trouble selling out Alpine Valley for years now. That's just the the reality of it. Yet they say they're going to continue to do shows at Alpine Valley. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Will Alpine Valley be able to continue as an ongoing concern? Are there acts out there that they're going to be able to bring in? Are they going to be able to compete with the Miller Parks and the Wrigley Fields and the Summerfests? And now you're going to have the, the new, you know, Bucks Arena that's going to be doing concerts. And you've got, you know, all the stuff that is in Chicago. Is Alpine Valley a white elephant or will it be able to continue? 414-799-1620. And the reason I bring this up is, is the announcement today that Summerfest, you know, landed Dave Matthews. I think that's a huge blow to Alpine Valley because, like I say, you, you know, when, when you think about in the last several years, who plays Alpine Valley? It's Zach Brown. It's Buffett. It's Dave Matthews. And then after that, it's like the monsters of, you know, you know, heavy rock or something like that. I think this was a huge blow to Alpine Valley. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 215. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, our text line. The reason Jimmy Buffett doesn't sell out is because he announces the particular concert date extremely late in the season. Many people already have plans for that date and aren't able to attend. Amazingly, I'm one of those there almost every time they announce the date. Um, I have not been able to see a show there for many years. A little planning ahead would go a long way. 
Well, I, look, I'm a huge Buffett fan. I'm the guy that goes sees him, you know, three or four times a year. But the truth is, he's getting older. The parrot, us parrot heads are aging. A lot of people that the tickets are really, really expensive. And, you know, the sales thing, I mean, he used to sell out Las Vegas and they struggle to sell Vegas out. So, uh, but, but regardless, I mean, Alpine Valley, you know, there's not that many acts that can fill that place. And now Dave Matthews is playing at Summerfest, which means he won't be playing at Alpine Valley. That leaves you got Jack, Zach Brown. Maybe you have Buffett. But that's not enough to build a season around. Can Alpine Valley succeed? Mark in West Bend. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Yeah, it really pains me to say it because I have so many great memories sure. from concerts at Alpine Valley, but I don't think they can do it these days. I think one thing against them is they're so far out there, and nowadays with the, you know, there's more police enforcement, there's more um, mm-hmm. watching over everything that goes on, and there's no place to stay overnight out there. Where compared to if you go to the Marcus Amphitheater, you're surrounded right. by hotels. You can use Uber. You can use a limo, which is cheaper to go to yeah. Milwaukee than all the way to East Troy. Right. You know, it's hard yeah, to get. You're, there's no question. It's, I mean, every time I go down there for a show, I'm reminded about how hard it is to get into and how really hard it is to get out of it after the concerts. No question about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been stuck in there before. And like I said, there's nowhere right next to it that you could grab a hotel room overnight or, or restaurants around to eat afterwards. Or There's none of that built up around Alpine Valley. It's a concert, and then you got to figure out how you're getting home. Right, and again, I, I, also, I, mean, I don't disagree with you. And then I go to – I, I keep thinking, okay, where are – you know, you know where are the acts? I mean, who who are the acts that you you know gonna, you're going to fill? You know, a thirty five thousand seat venue, especially given that right. you know th- those kind of super groups nowadays. There's not that many, and the ones that are they're they're playing the seventy thousand seat stadiums or the fifty five thousand seat stadiums. I mean, that's I, I just don't know where the performers are going to come from either. Um, but I mean, I, I don't wish them ill. I'm just no. you know I just don't know who the shows are going to be. So. Yeah, when I think about the groups that I saw out there, they were all huge names. I yeah. mean, names that are still on the radio every day today. Right, Bruce you know? Springsteen. Um, you know, yep. so I saw Spring, I, Springsteen played there. You know, the Rolling Stones. I saw the Stones there. Fleetwood Mac yep. and the Rumor Days. I mean, those those are those type of bands, and there's right. not that many of those bands that are out there now. No, I saw Rush and Ozzy and Kiss and Steve Miller and right. and. And, and, yeah, and it goes on and on and on, but they're all, yeah, I don't see where they're going to get the money. Another thing, it's falling apart. I mean, I remember it falling apart years ago when yeah. I was there. Yeah, it, the it, money it would take to revamp it, where are they going to get the tax to pay for it? Well, you know, I, you know I, thanks for calling. I mean, I, I say this lovingly, but... I mean, I've been saying for years, and I, again, they say they put, they, they, when they said they were going to close last year, they were going to put all this money in. Maybe they did. I, I don't know. I haven't been down there, but it, it was a dump. I, I mean, the, the restrooms were dumpy. I mean, but I understand that. I mean, if it's only, if you're talking about a venue that's only used a, a few times a year, sort of like this is the segue with what we were talking about last hour with the Milwaukee Mile. I mean, I, I understand it's tough for you know the owners to say, okay, is it worth a commitment of money? And get me, don't get me wrong, I, I don't wish the facility ill, but I, I just don't see how you survive if all you're going to be able to do is have a handful of concerts every summer. George in Kenosha. George, kind of your neck of the woods. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, yeah, just wanted to say I worked at Alpine Valley under their maintenance team, 
Okay. So I had the pleasure of picking up after uh, <laughs> all the all the people. Right. After, no. I'll bet you after the Grateful Dead finished their show, you know that oh, parking man. lot with <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we were picking up people the next day. Yeah. They fell asleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, my thoughts is um, obviously there needs to be big renovations. Um, obviously there needs to be upkeep and under Live Nation if they put some advertisement into. Uh, that location in Alpine Valley, wouldn't it be great to bring that back? And it's such a beautiful venue, mm-hmm. and there's so many uh, great memories that people have had there. There, there are, gonna, I guess, but who, who do you see, I mean, who do you see as the acts that, that could still right. fill that? I mean, the Rolling Stones aren't playing in Alpine Valley. The Rolling Stones would, would play, you know, um, you know, Soldier Field, mm-hmm. or they might play Miller Park. You know, those, uh, you know, mm-hmm. You know, the same thing, Pink Floyd, all, all those. And because right. we're talking about bands from my era, you know, I, and I, who, who plays there? I mean, who would fill sure. that place? And it's obvious that that's long and over with. Um, and that's a great question. Um, again, there isn't really enough of a population out there currently right. that would drive there from Chicago or Milwaukee or Madison right. even. Uh, but I think I'm going to give it a slight chance with all this uh with southeastern Wisconsin growing at the rate it is, and with yeah. all these big companies coming in, I'm yeah. going to give it a slight chance, and I'm going to go with um, Alpine Valley making it. You know, maybe taking another five to ten years, but yeah. you know, why not? You know, it'd be great. I'd, I'd love to oh, see it. Oh yeah, no, thank, thanks. And again, I'm, I'm not wishing Alpine Valley ill, uh, other than, and, and maybe it is kind of a reflection of me getting older. Um, I just, I, I, I want things easier. And, you know, an Alpine Valley isn't easy. It, it's hard to get into. It is a nightmare. To, it, it's a nightmare to get out of when you have 30,000 people all leaving at the same time and you've got like one access road. I mean, it's just a flat out nightmare. And I've, I've kind of learned some of the back ways, but even with that, it, it's just, it, it's, it's a nightmare. Um, to get into and out of. And you've got all the competition that is around, including, you know, venues that, are not as big, but are are more are more comfortable. And I, I guess I, I look. I, I admit when when I first heard that they were closing for last year, taking the year off, I I, I might have even said this on the radio. I, I was skeptical that they'd be opening again. Um, you know, now that they've got Zach Brown, and that that's great. He's going to be doing two shows. I figured Dave Matthews would there be there, but no, Matthews is playing Summerfest. I I, I just. I guess my question would be if if the only concert lineup you're going to be able to put together is, you know, two or three shows during the course of of the summer, the question almost becomes why bother? Just asking. 225 Jeff Wagner WTMJ. 228 Jeff Wagner WTMJ can't go wrong with Warren Zevon and Werewolves of London. All right. No problem traveling to London, but why in the world would anybody travel to North Korea? Now, I, I have argued in this program, I don't think Americans should be allowed to travel to North Korea because they set themselves up to be taken hostage. But th- this is all I would take. Fox had the story the other day. Visiting North Korea, State Department says you need to do a couple things, including 
draft a will and make funeral plans. Um, This is what they say. The U.S. government is unable to provide emergency services to U.S. citizens in North Korea as it does not have diplomatic or consular relations with North Korea. They warned. Those who wish to travel to North Korea must be approved for special validations, which are handed out on a very limited basis. U.S. travelers who then do get permission to go should prepare for the worst including drafting a will and making funeral uh, and property arrangements with their family and friends. Draft a will and designate appropriate insurance beneficiaries and or power of attorney. Discuss a plan with loved ones regarding care, custody of children, pets, property, belongings, non-liquid assets, funeral wishes, etc., according to the State Department. The uh, agency also urged people to have a contingency plan for emergency situations. Okay. Now, again, I appreciate adventure travel, and I appreciate that there is this desire for people to see places that they haven't otherwise seen. All I know, though, is if the State Department's saying, if you go, you're on your own, and make sure you have a will and funeral arrangements planned, once I hear that, I'm thinking Cancun sounds pretty good. I'm just saying Cancun, North Korea. Key West, North Korea. I don't know. I you know, I didn't hear anybody saying if you're going to Key West, make sure your will is in order. But, you know, what can you do? All right. When we come back, a lot of great stuff coming up on today's program. They did away with the individual mandate. Now the question is, should employers have to offer people health insurance? It's 234. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 22 degrees outside. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average continues to break records, but is the Dow a true indicator of how strong the economy is? Gene Miller checks in with financial advisor Tony Drake. That's at 651 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. Be sure to tune in. Okay, now what's going on in the stock market here? Because it was up, it was up big, and now, now it's kind of down. Um, at, the, the Dow, for a brief period of time, Topped twenty six thousand. It mean, just hit twenty five thousand. What that was like last week or something. Um, and at one point in time, it was up like one hundred sixty or one hundred seventy points, maybe even a little more. Now it's up twenty one points. So it had a substantial decrease. The Nasdaq was up about twenty one. Now it's down nineteen. So it hit twenty six thousand, but it doesn't look like it's gonna. It doesn't look like it's gonna finish. Um, I don't think it's going to close at, at over 26,000 unless there's some huge run-up that occurs in the next 20-some minutes. But there's no question. The economy doing extremely well. All right. As part of the the budget bill, the tax reform bill, one of the things that happened is the what they call the individual mandate, the requirement that individuals have health insurance under Obamacare. That was taken out. Right? There the next thing that is under discussion is the employer mandate. The way the law works is that employers, if you are a company and you have, I think the number is 50 or more employees, so you're a large employer, you have to offer all employees who work at least 30 hours a week, you have to offer them insurance benefits. If you don't, there's a penalty of $2,260 a year multiplied by the number of full-time employees in excess of of 30. So if you had 100 employees and you didn't offer them insurance, 
100 minus 30 would be 70, 70 times 2,200. So, you know, fig- figure that out. That's what the penalty it's 140-some thousand, maybe a little bit more. That, that's, that's the bottom line. So that, that is the penalty. Um, the, the government has not been aggressive about enforcing those particular penalties, but it appears they're starting to crack down on this. There's also penalties if insurers, are, if uh, companies offer too good health insurance. You know, the, the Cadillac tax is what they would call that. All right, one of the the things that is now being looked at is now that you've done away with the requirement that individuals have to have insurance, what about the mandate that companies should be required to offer people insurance? Now, I want to say this. I, I have been fortunate enough in my lifetime to work for companies that always offered insurance. And that that is a factor. I know there's all you know, maybe you're in that same situation. I talk to a lot of people nowadays who are getting closer to retirement and, you know, they're ready to pull the plug. They're ready to stop working. But it is this concern. I can't I can't leave my job until I may be able to get into Medicare because I I need the insurance and I, I can't afford to pay for it otherwise. So, I mean, I know insurance is is a big deal. Having said all that. And this is not a reflection on suggesting that I don't think companies should offer insurance. This employer mandate, I've always thought, was ill-considered, at least the way it was passed into law. The way it works is, if you work at least 30 hours a week, you have to be offered insurance. I know many companies and many individuals who worked part-time. Um... Let us say, and I'll, I'll just, I will give you a hypothetical example, but it doesn't even necessarily have to be hypothetical. For example, I, I know someone who was going to school and was working somewhere between, I don't know, 35 and 39 hours on a regular basis. His wife worked full time and had access to health insurance. So he got, he had health insurance through his wife. Um, he loved his job. What happened is, after this law went into effect, the company he worked for, like many companies, decided we can't we can't afford to offer health insurance, paid for health insurance, to all our part-time employees. We're going to do it for the full-time employees, but we can't afford to do it for our part-time employees. So what the company that he worked for and what a lot of companies have done is they said, okay, here's the deal. We can't, we, we love the job you're doing. You're working 38 hours a week, you know, but we, we can't afford to pay you health insurance. So what we're going to do is you're not going to be able to work 38 hours a week anymore. Now you're going to work 28 hours a week. And, you know, you're not going to have those occasional weeks where you go over 40 and maybe even get time and a half. You know, you're going to be capped at 30 hours. You can't work more than that where you're going to be capped at 29 hours a week because we don't want to get in a situation of how we have to pay. We have to pay you health insurance. So the effect of this law in many cases hasn't been to get the part time employees health insurance. All it's really done is cut their hours. So now they're used to working, I don't know, 35 hours a week. Now they're only getting 25 hours a week. So now they have to go out and find a second part-time job that, you know, to do for like 10 or 12 hours. 
which doesn't benefit the employer and it doesn't benefit the employee. I think it is long past time to either, number one, repeal the employer mandate, the mandate, or number two, if you don't do that, what you need to do is bring this law into the real world, which says that, all right, you know, if you got to offer health insurance, you only have to offer it to the people who are the real full-time employees. And I think most of us would understand the full-time job to be 40 hours or more. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The individual mandate is now gone. Should the employer mandate go away as well? My answer would be yes. If it doesn't go away, though, it needs to be dramatically changed. 414-799-1620. To me, if you're going to have it, it should only apply to full-time employees. But I don't think employers should be required to offer their employees uh, health insurance. I just don't think they should be required to do that. If they choose to do it as a benefit, I think that's great. Um, and a lot of companies have to do it because we're we're you know we're kind of in a full employment economy now, and so you know if you're trying to find people, you've got to offer those type of benefits. Do we need the government to mandate that? And my answer would be no. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Two forty two. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's two forty six. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, what really happened behind the scenes that led to the changes with the Packers' top brass? Our very own Wayne Larrabee gets the inside scoop from Pete Doherty of the Press-Gazette in his latest play-by-play podcast on WTMJ.com, presented by your local Chevy dealer. While you're on the podcast page, by the way, you can download podcasts of all the shows you hear on WTMJ. I know a lot of people listen to this program that way because I get to see the numbers, and I very much appreciate that. So check that all out. I Look, I, I understand, and I'm getting a number of texts and emails saying, well, Jeff, if, if you don't want to see like us go to a single-payer system, then the employers have to provide health insurance. Well, here, here's the deal. First of all, I, I think it is a free market solution. The reality is I think lots of employers do have an incentive to do that because they're not going to be able to find employees if they don't. I mean, that's just the competitive disadvantage that's out there. But but the bigger point is what we're doing now by the, by putting in this employer mandate, really it doesn't work. First of all, the penalty is 2200 bucks, right? That's not a – and this is just kind of like the individual mandate. The, the penalty for not having insurance wasn't so great that it provided an incentive for people to get insurance who didn't want it otherwise. This is the same thing. I mean, the penalty is like 2200 bucks. All right, well, insurance costs an employer a lot more than that to offer. So if you're going to be serious about this, what you need to do is you need to impose a high enough penalty to really you know, make the employer have to do it. But but the employers that don't want to offer health insurance, they're getting around this anyways, because for for the particularly for the part time employees, what what they're saying is, all right, we can't make you full time because we can't afford it because of the benefits. So if you apply this to somebody who's only working thirty hours, who's you know working more than thirty hours a week, 
what the employers do, and this is what a lot of big employers have done, is they've simply cut hours to keep you below it. In the example, the hypothetical slash semi-real example I was using earlier, you've got somebody who's working 38 hours a week. Um, now they're cut down to 25 hours a week, and they still don't have health insurance. How are they better off because of that? And that's, again, it's one of these things that intellectually sounds great, but the truth of the matter is if you have employers that don't want to or figure they can't afford to offer health insurance, um, this this is the way that you get around it. And they do, in fact, you know, end up getting around it in this way. And, and I guess, I, I mean, look, I, I understand in a perfect world, you know, everybody wants their employer to provide health insurance. And that is a wonderful, that's a wonderful sort of thing. But that's a competitive thing. And health insurance is a big deal for a lot of people. And I, I think especially as we move further, closer and closer to, again, a full employment economy, which is where we're, we're going, you know, employers are going to have to offer that if they want to get decent workers. So in any event, um, that's the next thing that's kind of on the chopping block, the employer mandate, in part because it has not worked as it was intended. All right, let's shift gears. Before the program ends, I do want to comment on the most bizarre story of of the weekend, bar none, and it's a story which I still do not understand. Now, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, you are of a different age than I am. Have you ever ridden a Greyhound bus? You ever you, you have you been on a bus? You've been on a coach bus, but I mean, but but I mean, have you ever like gone from Milwaukee to St. Louis like on a Greyhound or something like that? Oh, internationally, okay, yeah, well, it you know. My days of doing that are, are long since passed. But back when I was younger, I mean, I I can remember. I we'd we'd hop the dog and we'd go to different places. I mean, I can I could just I can remember traveling around and you know you'd you'd stop at all sorts of like small bus depots along the way and all those type of things. I remember the old bus station in Milwaukee. Now now we call it the intermodal station, but it's really the old bus depot. Um, I remember the old bus depot. You, you could hang out there and you could get a lifetime of stories from just spending like a day in, in the bus depot. Well, all right, so last Friday night, and th- this incident, it starts, I don't know, 9, 9.30 at night, 9.45 at night. There's a bus full of people heading from Milwaukee south on, on Greyhound. Right, well, what happens is you have a guy who turns out to be in this country illegally, um, after having previously been deported, who starts threatening people's lives on this, this Greyhound bus. Can you imagine you're on a Greyhound bus and you've got some nut job? You know? So um, what happens is a couple of the people call 911. And they say that, you know, they're, they're, they report the fact that there's this guy who's threatening their lives. So the call comes in, and at the time, the bus is in Milwaukee County. So the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department goes out and they try to flag down the bus. You know, you've got the bright red, the bright flashing lights and stuff. Well, the bus doesn't stop, right? So at this point in time, the and this is the way this was reported on the Internet um, at the time, there's a report that the concern is that the bus has been hijacked, you know, because you've got – Right, people making nine one one calls saying, "Okay, we got this person who's threatening to kill us." Now you've got the cop cars out there, and they're trying to, you know, stop the car, and the bus driver's not stopping. The thought is 
the bus has been hijacked. And, and so now you're in a major situation. I mean, I saw the movie Speed. Now you're in a major sort of situation here. So the bus drives into Racine. So Milwaukee gets the Racine deputies involved. And they've got... They've got Racine deputies. Now, this is nighttime. So you see these bright flashing, you know, red and blue lights. They are trying to pull the bus over, and the bus refuses to stop. So now, again, it is this panic situation among law enforcement because it is, okay, has this bus been hijacked? How many people do you have on it? What are we going to do? Uh, at one point in time, in Racine, I believe, they put down the stop sticks, you know, the things that, like, flatten out tires. They put those on the freeway. The bus drives over those, and a number of the tires get flattened. The bus driver continues driving. So, again, everybody thinks that this is a hijack situation. Um, the same thing. So now now it's going through Racine County. So you've got the Racine people. You've got the sheriff's deputies from Milwaukee. You're now in Kenosha. The Kenosha sheriff's department get involved so you've got cars all up and down the freeway and lights flashing the thing has run over the stop stick so like all these tires are starting to deflate but the bus driver keeps going and going and going and again all the cops are thinking hostage situation you know hijack situation what are we going to do um ultimately they've now crossed into illinois and the bus finally comes to a stop because, like, the tires are on rims and things like that on the, these buses. And they, they, get on the, they get on the bus, and they find out it's not a hijack situation. They're able to catch the guy that was the subject of the 911 calls who, you know, apparently after he gets taken off the bus, he makes death threats to the, the cops. But the bigger question becomes, what is going on with the bus driver? Why didn't you stop? You know, and, and I mean, I, I can imagine these cops are getting on with guns drawn, all that type of stuff. And the, the bus driver says, well, I didn't know you were trying to pull me over. <laughs> you know, you, you've got an arm. It's like the Blues Brothers movie where they're chasing him, all these cops, the bus driver. I didn't know you were trying to pull him over. Uh, he's hit stop sticks. He's, he's like, well, I, I thought I did notice the cars, but I, I thought it was kind of like a, a training exercise or something like that. Huh? If this guy, well, I mean, I, I think the easy thing is he should obviously never be driving a bus uh, again. The, the bigger thing is, is there a crime that's committed? But this, I mean, this whole incident took, um, well, a, a couple hours to resolve. It wasn't resolved until about 1230 in the morning. And again, that's the big question is, how could the driver be so clueless? The driver apparently said, well, he didn't know there was any problem. He didn't think that all those cars that were trying to pull him over were going after him, which does make you wonder if if that's really if you can be that clueless and drive a greyhound bus it does make you wonder how greyhound screens its bus drivers just saying so you think your friday night was exciting well imagine if you were on that bus it's 255 when we come back we'll find out what john and melissa have on their minds for wisconsin's afternoon news this is jeff wagner stick around it's wtmj